You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. And welcome to What Goes Up, a Bloomberg Weekly Markets podcast. I'm Sarah Ponsek, a reporter on the Cross Asset team. And I'm Mike Regan, a senior editor on the markets team. This week on the show, the beloved trade of 2019 is being tested. Recession fears have faded. Sentiment has turned incrementally more positive. And that sent bond yields higher. And it's now pressuring stock investors that were before playing defense. Is this the start of something new or is it just a false dawn? And as always, we'll end the episode with our tradition, the craziest thing I saw in markets this week. Sarah, I presume you're prepared for that segment? I am prepared, but I have a feeling that you have a, a very special one. I, got, I have a very special edition <laughs> of the craziest thing I saw in markets this week. But let's get right to it. I mean, uh, sort of a crazy week in the bond market. We're seeing a, a really notable back up in yields. And uh, luckily, by happenstance, we happen to have the perfect guest to help us break it down. Uh, from PGIM, we have Robert Tipp, who is the chief investment strategist at PGIM. Robert, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. And it's good to have a Jersey guy, I would say, too. At least you, you work in Jersey, in Newark, if, if my uh, notes are correct. Well, I'm quite uh, diverse. I commute from uh, Westchester, so I drive through you know quite a range of geography. Oh, that's very regional. Yeah. <laughs> that's a nightmare of a commute, I imagine. Yeah. <laughs> no comment. Well, it's not, you know, <laughs> at least it's not a most common, commonly trodden path. That's true. And also joining us this week, commuting all the way from Greenwich Village, we have uh, Chris Nagy, the executive editor uh, of Markets at Bloomberg. Chris, welcome back to the show. Oh, thanks for having me, Mike. You thanks, might for, be our... uh, thanks for identifying where I live. For oh, that's true. Time. Anyone looking for Chris, you can find I him. I know where you live. Greenwich Village <laughs> is pretty big, right? Yeah. Well, you got people looking for you, Chris? Uh, based on some of our Trump stories, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Trump fans and debt collectors can find Chris Nagy. <laughs> <in> the... <laughs> okay. Robert, I got to sort of pat you on the back, pat your team on the back. So I was looking at some of the returns on the funds this year, especially the PGIM total return bond fund up 10% year to date. Wow. But not only that, it's it's uh, performance compared to peers is really impressive. A one-year basis, according to our data, it's in the 95th percentile, five years, it's in the 89th percentile. What's going right? I mean, it, obviously, we've had this ferocious rally in bonds, but what are you guys doing uh, especially right to have these really great numbers? Sure. Well, thanks. You know, we take a, a long-term approach. So we're looking at the overall backdrop, the macroeconomy, policy, monetary, fiscal, not just in the U.S., but globally. 
And so much so these days, what happens in the bond market is really a, a global phenomena. The balance of, of borrowing and lending is really driven almost more so by the amount of savings coming out of foreign countries than what's going on here just domestically in the U.S. that would impact uh, you know, a general intermediate bond fund. And so when we look at the big picture, even just in the U.S., the market's quite sensitive to interest rates. And when they've been up well north of, of 2%, the economy is really kind of bogged down a bit, especially the interest rate sensitive sector, and give you the message that the equilibrium interest rate here is lower than most people think. And uh, when we look abroad, the money is, is pouring across the transom. Most places have negative rates. People are paying to park their money in these countries, or if they're buying long-dated securities, they might be zero yield, um, long-term zero coupon bonds, you know, that have an asymmetric looking risk return profile. And so the money's come over here as well, even if on a hedged basis, when they eliminate currency risk, they end up with a negative uh, yield on a standstill basis. But at least over here, yields are well north of zero. Maybe you have some upside as well as downside. And so I think, you know, that's driven us to a secular view that rates would be declining and, and we've positioned for that. Is there anything in this sell-off in the bond market this week uh, that sort of changes your your stance on on all of that? Is is it a turning point, or is this just sort of uh, a little bit of a, of a correction in a, a very much an overbought treasury market? Well, I wish I could give you the answer, <laughs> um, but you know what what we've seen over the years in the secular bull market that we've had in bonds for forty years. At any given point in time, you may have a cyclical upturn, and uh, expectations and views of economies around the world have become pretty morose. And uh, so you can get a backup in the bond market driven by technical conditions. And I think to a large extent, what we've seen so far is kind of an equal and opposite reaction to the panic buying that we saw uh, not too long ago. And we'll have to see if the fundamentals follow through. Um, but our, our base case would be that the range, say for the 10-year treasury, is maybe one and a half to two and a half, but probably more likely something more like one to two. And that we're gonna see these fundamentals reassert themselves and, and cause rates to stabilize or maybe even fall again. So we did see a pretty major backup in yield this week, the 10 year once again, approaching 2%, which is a level we hadn't seen in at least a couple of months. Because when you think about your lower for longer thesis, much of that does have to do with where yields are overseas, does that just mean that there is a cap on where U.S. Treasury yields can go going forward? Because no matter what, as long as they're higher than yields overseas, you're always going to have some sort of demand? I think it creates a friction. And so what we've seen in the sell-off is the Treasuries have sold off less than foreign bonds. And in these, uh, the, the key uh, global markets, JGBs, bonds. Uh, European bonds, Japanese bonds, there has been a, a sell-off and, uh, you know, there, there's a whiff of change in the air in both of these places. In Japan, they've been trying to steepen their yield curve, push up long-term yields to leave more on the table for insurers, for banks. Uh, and in Europe, you have a change uh, of, of, uh, of leadership at the ECB. So people, you know, questioning, will there be this unflinching commitment to incredibly low rates and QE going forward? And so... Uh, I, I think the, the level of yields, the spread being at, at um, you know, your 95th type percentile of multi-decade uh, levels relative to much higher than these foreign yields, that creates a cushion, but it doesn't create a lid. 
I wanted to dig in a little bit on the, I was looking at the PGIM total return bond fund. I think it's one of your biggest rate, about 50 billion in assets. Um, and I was looking at sort of the allocations and the holdings. Now this is our data is at the, as of the end of August. So not necessarily current, but a couple things uh, really caught my eye. Uh, 40% mortgages, 37% corporate, about 18% government. But Looking at the individual top holdings, uh, there were a few uh, USD Euro swaps, uh, USD uh, British Pound swap. So walk us through, um, and I think those were all about like 4 or 5% of, of the allocation. So pretty big positions. Um, now, I'm a stock guy, so I don't necessarily know what's going on with these. But my guess is these, these were basically bets on uh, rate spreads, yield spreads narrowing between the U.S. and, and Europe. Is that... Is that the safe way to describe it? Our risks are principally domestic. Yeah. And a currency risk, a foreign interest rate risk is, is going to be very limited. And so uh, proponents of, of swaps that will be used in the fund will be issue selection driven. So we may find that a U.S. issuer issues in euros, maybe at a wider spread than in the U.S. We buy that bond and we hedge it back to the U.S. Now, we have had... Um, you know, at different points in time, uh, you know, small positions in foreign interest rate risk uh, or even uh, FX on, for, on the foreign currency side. But those tend to be very small, not not as large as, as that magnitude generally. Right, right. Chris, come in here and give us the equity view, because it's not only yields that have been rising this week. I mean, stocks have been rising and pretty forcefully, too, at that. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like stocks are happy to see yields go up. I mean, the big equity perspective on that is that uh, something going on with bonds and yields in the curve means recessions coming. So anything that kind of undoes that argument. Now you're saying that the, just as big an issue would be yields getting too high at this point. Kind of reminds me of a saying we have on the desk, which is whatever the hell happens, it's bad. <laughs> um, but uh, I guess we shouldn't get too comfortable with the relief we're feeling over seeing a little bit of unwinding in the curve and all of these, uh, you know, sort of unbelievably reliable recession indicators. Well, it's true that, you know, the um, the good news that's that's boosting the equity market, uh, whether it was uh, less worse than feared earnings uh, or uh, some optimism on the trade front, uh, that that's it's bad for yields until yields get too high and they begin to choke off uh, what's going in the equity market. But so far, we're in the sweet spot. Uh, where uh, you have some concerns on the rate side, uh, but a rising risk appetite, enough economic optimism to outweigh yeah. you know, the rise in discount rates. So is the last few weeks in markets, how much would you attribute it to uh, the trade optimism and how much would you attribute it to the Fed apparently being on hold, but yet still uh, sort of doing what it can to keep the repo market uh, in order with with these short-term treasury purchases. I mean, how big of a deal is the Fed, at least in the rates market uh, right now? Yeah, I, I mean, I think those are those are excellent points. I think that uh, the risk on uh, makes people wonder, you know, gee, is it really over for bonds? Should I have more equities? And on the retail side, there have been a lot of outflows uh, from equities, so there's some of that. I think, though, we have shifted in market environment from one where central banks had wound down their quantitative uh, purchases, their, their QE buys, and uh, that was bad for risk. I mean, what we saw, for example, in 2009 in these previous instances of aggressive QE is it dampened equity volatility, it pushed up stock markets, it pushed down volatility, and we had moved away from that. Last year was a very volatile year. 
where risk product had a hard time going anywhere and there was much less liquidity coming into the system. So now we've gone back into uh, bill buying, you know, uh, and a rising Fed balance sheet. The ECB is back in buying. Uh, Bank of Japan is, is slowing their purchases, but at a very slow rate. And at the same time, they are, in a way, remodeling their policy because they feel they will be incredibly accommodative for even longer than anticipated. So I, I think the accommodation, the liquidity, liquidity injection uh, has tended to bear steep in the curve a little bit, and we're seeing some of that here. You know, at the same time, uh, you look at the data that's come in so far for the fourth quarter and you kind of distill it down to these uh, nowcasts that the Fed does. The Atlanta Fed's GDP now model, I think, is at like 0.9% growth for the fourth quarter. The New York Fed's one is even lower. I think it's like 0.8. So, so, you know, some of the lowest growth potentially we've seen in this cycle Albeit, you know, models that tend to jump around a lot. There's still a lot of data to come in uh, for the quarter. But are markets getting a little bit ahead of themselves on the optimism here uh, this week? Well, I think so. I mean, our base case of a 1% to 2% range would suggest you're getting near the top of the range. And uh, as, as you're highlighting this week, the news has not been really positive on the fundamental side. In terms of what really matters for rates markets, which... in in some um, to some extent is really the real economy. Do people need to borrow a lot of money to invest? Durable goods, big picture, those numbers are very flat. Uh, we had this week another poor industrial production figure uh, coming from the European side. And so basically, you know, that would suggest that more likely than not, there was uh, some exuberance when the rates were rallying. And then some people are asking themselves, what were we doing? Uh, and and a little bit of panic selling here. Chris, does it seem as though the stock market is maybe getting a bit ahead of itself too? I mean, you just look at where we're seeing the outperformance lately and energy stocks are really on a tear this week. You look at other cyclical areas of the market. Is it possible that this is just beta chasing? Um, in, in, a, in a way, yes. I, I feel like what's going on in the, in the, in the equity market reflects uh, the sort of standard word is rotation going on, that there's a lot of people who have been caught short by this rally. And let's face it, if the if the, if the market stopped dead right here at 25%, basically year to date, no one would be, no one would have any reason to complain. I'm sure they would complain. In fact. Um, <laughs> there's but, always a reason. Yeah. Um, but uh, if you're a fund manager who's watched this happen and has been wedded to defensive shares or bond proxies, and now the bond market's rolling or to some degree rolling over, and you're stuck with all of that stuff, and you're watching everything take off. I mean, it's a sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. You're gonna you're gonna need to dive back in and grab some beta. It, it reminds me of a, a story your team had out uh, this week uh, about the percentage of active yeah. equity mutual fund managers right. who are beating. They're getting killed. The, was it 29% yeah, or, right. or beating they're, the benchmark? They're, I mean, they're, they're always getting killed, but they're getting killed a little worse right now for some of these reasons. And it's a bad year, I think, probably to, to, to look bad. I mean, everyone's going to, I mean, to the degree people care about performance, I, I feel like everyone should look at their returns and their 401k and say, oh, man, I made 25% this year, but that's not how the professional class will look at it. 
And this is sort of the big sort of melt-up thesis right now, that there's going to be a lot of people diving back into the market in the next two months to try to make those numbers. And it's like, look out above if that starts to happen. Yeah, what, what do you think the chances of that are? I mean, we're obviously seeing it uh, right. to some degree. Does it continue through the, till the uh, end of the uh, year? Walking in here, I probably would have said pretty good. As I listen to uh, our guest and some of the signals coming from the bond <laughs> market, I think that's ultimately the determinant. If the economy doesn't go anywhere, and what I know about is the economy is earnings, and earnings in the fourth quarter look like they're going to suck. So uh, there the ultimate determinant will be whether or not the macro picture is good enough for stocks. And, you know, these supply and demand and chasing beta things are a factor for a little while, but uh, they won't they won't call the ultimate tune. Much of this reversal has been predicated on the idea that we are seeing a stabilization in growth. We could see a nice rebound in 2020. And I did do my homework, Robert. I dug up something that you said on Bloomberg Television last week. And after the employment report, you said this is a picture perfect soft landing. It's what they're on track for, talking about the Federal Reserve. Is that actually what we're seeing? And if so, wouldn't that bode very well then for risk assets? I think so. And uh, I think the comment I made was that uh, he's, uh, Powell's been criticized, you know, for how he's handled the, the press conferences. And I think they did a pretty flat-footed last hike last year, you know, one too many. But I think in a way, they kind of wanted to stick their finger in the eye of the president uh, who had been uh, badgering them. And uh, so they managed to do that without doing too much damage. They've whipped around. They've cut uh, three times, which was, uh, you know, going every meeting, every six weeks, as opposed to when they were hiking, which, you know, they were only moving once a quarter. So they quickly uh, cut. And uh, they may be there for the soft landing. And so our hypothesis, frankly, for some time is that although this is a more abundant economic backdrop, it is not as much growth as people would want to see. It is not a feel-good economy for people that in the markets, you have a declining equilibrium interest rate. You have a very long business cycle because these central banks uh, have prevented uh, really big financial excesses from building up. And they have not jumped in and crushed the economy with rate hikes, which is typically what kills it. So I think what's, what's shocking to people is you are having a very extended cycle. They're on track to continue this. And so as a result, uh, your rates are likely to remain low your period of spread sector outperformance continues, and your equity market uh, continues to look quite competitive in terms of earnings yields and valuations relative to a bond market uh, with yields this low. I, I feel like the, there's a point to be made here about the stock market being an economic input unto itself. That's sort of a lucky break that they get here, that the one thing that could, not the one, that obviously the consumer remains strong. One of the reasons the consumer remains strong, you saw this after the fourth quarter of last year when the market tanked, uh, some of the uh, uh, animal spirits kind of got beaten out. But right now, a lot of people are sitting with a lot of money thanks to the stock market, and that's part of the big eco bull case. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. 
Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. I'm glad you brought up the consumer, Chris. That that brings me back to looking at the uh, PGIM total retu- return bond fund. 40% mortgages. Um, is it safe to say that, uh, you know, a lot of what we've heard people talk about and seen ourselves this year is, yeah, certain parts of the economy are very weak. You, got, you have manufacturing's weak. Uh, the consumer still remains strong. Um what are you looking at in the housing market? Is it just blue skies ahead uh, in the housing market? Is there, you know, and is there still yield there considering, uh, you know, some people are still looking at that market with a, a jaundiced eye after the financial crisis? Well, I think that in terms of the agency pass through market, we're seeing a little bit of value there uh, after the Fed has, you know, been rolling off and people have been scared out of that market a little bit. Uh, we're we're stabilizing it at attractive levels, and and uh, so we have you know some uh, intermittent exposure there. But most of what you're seeing in the mortgage categories is structured product that is actually away from residential. Okay. So you're going to be looking at uh, a good amount of commercial mortgage backed, uh, where those asset prices have been firmer, but also where we tend to be uh, in the top position in the capital structure, uh, or in one of at any rate one of the very highly rated ones, unless. Uh, you know, in some exceptional cases, there could be a a single asset type situation that's that's mid-rated, but there's much less of that. So predominantly high-quality commercial and then uh, a fair amount of collateralized loan obligations, CLOs. And uh, this is a, a sector where uh, you are collateralized by below investment grade loans. So uh, an, an area that is not uh, one of the best looking areas right here. That's an area that was technically very well supported because uh, they're floating rate assets during the period of Fed rate hikes. Uh, now the Fed is on hold, and so uh, retail money is going out of those funds. Loan prices are under pressure. And uh, there are concerns on asset quality. The underwriting was most aggressive there. Uh, but for uh, diligent investors, I think, who can you know forge through the different managers, what exactly is in these deals, and then go right to the top of the capital structure, not in the middle, not at the bottom, that there are spreads available that are very competitive with intermediate and long-term corporate bonds uh, that are much lower rated than a AAA CLO uh, and have very competitive spreads, the CLO. So I think it's a fair amount of that. Uh, where we're looking to get some some lower risk, lower beta spread at, at this point in the cycle. Do you see any product offerings out there that do make cause for concern for those who maybe aren't doing their due diligence? Cough, we work. <laughs> Cough. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think the, the loan area is one where you've had some, uh, you know, changes. It, I mean, there's almost a... a a terminology misplacement at this point where a lot of those deals, they don't go through banks at all. So at, at one point that market in, in its genesis, if you had an LBO or you had a lower rated uh, company, they may have a range of different financing options. They may go to the high yield market. They may borrow collateralized in the bank loan market and then that would be syndicated out. But that paper would be going through a major bank that would have uh, a certain kind of underwriting process. Now uh, with 
the really large uh, private equity pools out there and uh, a lot of capital looking for deals, a lot of the uh, loans are, are not going through a bank intermediary at all. Uh, there are a lot of very small deals uh, and um, um, much wider range of credit quality. And so, you know, as the economy is moderated a little bit and, and you alluded to the, the stats uh, on the economic side, you are seeing rising um, uh a number of companies that are missing their earnings forecast and seeing their bonds drop 10, 20, 40 points. Uh, and that's more so on the loan side for sure than than in the high yield area. I'm curious you know, to get back to that 1% to 2% range on the 10-year yield that you see. Uh, is there an expiration date on that if, uh, say, we wake up next week and that phase one trade deal is signed? Um, or is it you think we'll stay in that range regardless of what happens with trade? You can never say for sure, and we're, we're investors, we're not forecasters. So if that situation changes, I have to change. Yeah. I have to get on the right side of it. Yeah. Um, but my a priori is that the world has changed in a massive way after the financial crisis, and it has, in some respects, just begun. That the workforces in China uh, and in Europe were growing until you got to the financial crisis, and now they have rolled over, they're actually shrinking. And so you're left in a world where debt is not rising at an astronomical rate, fueling growth, fueling profit growth, fueling spending, fueling investment, uh, and where you have a growing population that needs a growing stock of goods, cars, housing, and so on. You're on the far side of that. And even in, in China, your car sales have rolled over, your retail square footage being put in place. This is a global phenomena where your growth rates uh, are going to be much more modest. You're borrowing, again, for the real economy, much more modest. And so that 1.5% central tendency basically does not have a shelf life. Uh, I would think it's going to be there uh, until we see some major change on the horizon that's going to take us to a much faster or slower plane of growth. Regardless of the supply of treasuries coming into the market, I mean, we're looking at what trillion dollar deficits. That's another good point I should differentiate too. So when I look at the curve now, I will look at treasuries, but I really need to look at OIS. So OIS or overnight index swaps are based on the Fed funds rate. That is the rate that the Fed is controlling. The treasuries are really trading at big spreads. Uh, relative to OIS because of the massive issuance. I don't think it's necessarily credit concerns, although at, at this pace, the U.S. over time will click down in ratings uh, as debt to GDP rises and, and so on. When you look at the, um, the OIS curve, it's perfectly flat at about the effective Fed funds rate uh, right now. Uh, and uh, But your Treasury yields may you know, vary around that depending on what happens with the deficit. Chris, last question before we get to the craziest things that we will all share. How much do you think it's possible that this resumption of such a risk on feel has to do with timing, that we're getting closer to 2020, we're less than a year away from the election, and that President Trump and the administration just can't screw up this U.S.-China deal? Well, yeah, if you take part of his motive as being the beginning of that kind of a campaign, then yes, timing could be part of it. Of course, the election itself holds all kinds of volatility potential that we shouldn't under, undercount. It's not like that's just unanimously good tidings coming down the, over the horizon. But um, there's that. There's a general tendency for stocks to go up at the end of the year for all kinds of sort of window dressing-ish reasons. And, you know, uh, just the, the end, if... if this thing's been going on for so long 
And if, you know, there's some, if there's ever, there really isn't reason to believe that it's permanently settled at any level and we shouldn't kid ourselves. But to the degree that uh, it's it's getting late as far as what when Trump can roll it back and sort, sort of get the economy or get the stock market, get the economy and these sort of sentiment proxies and under control, timing could be a factor for sure. Speaking of timing, it's that time, Sarah. What is the craziest thing you saw in markets this week? So I'm going to go back to, I believe, something we've spoken about before on the show, which is the Popeye's chicken sandwich. (laughs) Uh, Because its parent owner, which is Restaurant Brands International, it's a Canadian company. They also own Burger King. They also own Tim Hortons. There's been a lot of hype over this Popeye's chicken sandwich. um, And they're trying to kind of gain competition and gain traction from Chick-fil-A. Well, what happened was when they first came out with the sandwich, they did not have the manpower for it. So they had to hire more people at Popeye's and Popeye's actually just had an unbelievable quarter in sales. Um, But what's crazy, and it's pretty unbelievable and also a little bit sad, I must say, um, there was so much demand at this one Popeye's location that a fight broke out over a chicken sandwich in line and it actually ended in um, a fatality. Oh my gosh. Which is, yeah, yeah. unbelievable uh, that you get to that point. But it just shows you what they're trying to do to gain competition, gain traction, is leading to other issues for the company um, in the long haul. Robert, did they tell you about our gimmick here, the craziest thing in in markets that we've seen? You know, I did hear about it, but I I don't have any content for you. Okay. (laughs) That's all right. That's right. I mean, for me, every day, wake up, look at the markets, I'm totally shocked and have to figure it out from there. (laughs) Would you say a 17 uh, basis point swing in 10 years on Thursday was pretty crazy? I think the the swings that that we're seeing and uh, market swings in sentiment on on trade and on positioning and fixing them they have been a little shocking. Chris, as I think you, you possibly are our first five timer guest here. Wow, uh, wow, I, yeah, I'm like the Paul Simon. You are, <laughs> yeah. We're gonna get you the smoking jacket right. and everything. Have you witnessed anything crazy in markets? I would say there's this thing that happened this week. Sarah wrote it up. This guy, Cliff Asnes, who loves, he adores our coverage of the stock. But he can't, <laughs> say, enough good, can, can't say enough good things about it. Hedge we got to get him on sometime. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, he put out a note where he said that uh, this he, he's, he runs AQR uh, Capital Management, big hedge fund, big hedge fund that runs uh, equity factors, which means that they own things like high dividend stocks and low valuation stocks, value stocks. And his whole thing is to basically program his computers and step back. It's kind of like really like advanced calculus, uh, passive investing. And they're incredibly rich and successful and huge. And really is one of the smartest guys really on earth. And um, but. So he came out with a note saying, so his big thing is you don't, you don't jump in and out of markets. You sit and let the computers do their work, let the factors run. He went out, went out with a note saying now might be a time value stock, cheap stocks have gotten so cheap that uh, it might be a time to sort of try to market time to take sort of opportuni- opportunistic stabs at them, which for him, I mean, it's hard to describe. It's so outside of his uh, usual worldview and philosophy for him to come in and say, act like, he's not saying act like a day trader, but you could translate that. He'd probably expect us to translate that into one of our stories. <laughs> um, but given some of the the wars he's had on Twitter and in, in public about uh trying to time factors with another guy, a guy we had on the show, Rob Arnott. Mm-hmm. They've really gotten into yeah. up, up in each other's face about it. But now Cliff is saying, you know, factors, uh, value is so cheap that may, maybe in this limited instance, it's okay to day trade. He says modest overweight. Yeah. Maybe right. the same as day I, I don't trading. want to oversell it. <laughs> Cliff, if you're listening, you can call the What Goes Up 
hotline and correct whatever Chris got wrong in that description, <laughs> <laughs> which was nothing, obviously. All right. Time for mine. I think I got, I think I hate to pat myself on the back, but I think, I think I got the best one here. You and you've probably all tell, heard this. Story. So we've all heard about this price war in the, the retail brokerage industry, Charles Schwab cutting commissions to zero. Well, the, the firm that really got it started, Robinhood, a few years ago, the first to offer uh, commission-free trading. Now they're one-upping everyone by offering "Quote unquote infinite leverage." Okay, offering know, is I, probably I, pushing. I, not exactly offering. There is a glitch in the system. A, a glitch yeah. in the system. I, <laughs> and of all places, it came out on Reddit. Someone, someone basically outed them for this. Of on course, Reddit. it would come yeah, out no, on Reddit of all places. Yeah, I guess I have to read Reddit now. But I, basically, if I get it right, what happens is you you take out a margin loan, you buy a bunch of stock, then you sell a bunch of covered calls based on that uh, position. Uh, with the money you collect from the selling the covered calls, you buy more stock with more leverage. You sell calls on them, and on and on it goes. Robert, if you had infinite leverage, what would you buy? Oh my God! I'm listen. <laughs> you know, after your description of uh, of assets at Aquia, I'm just a bond guy. You know, if, <laughs> if we didn't have a top performing fund, I would have a complete complex at this point. <laughs> But we don't go to infinite leverage. <laughs> why, wisely so. I only, only Robin Hood in a glitch. With that said, though, I, I think, Mike, you, you did win it this time. It was yes. pretty unbelievable seeing that story this week. Uh, but Robert Tip, Chris Nagy, thank you so much for joining the show this week. Thanks. Thank you. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, website and app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at, at Sarah Ponsek, Mike is at Reganonymous, and Chris Nagy is at ChrisNagy1. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcast at Podcast. And don't forget, you can also give us a call at our very own Bloomberg Podcast Hotline, that number is 646-324-3490. And if you leave a message, we may even play it on the show. What Goes Up is produced by Topher Forges. The head of Bloomberg Podcast is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.